Welcome to Catalyst, the launch by NTT Data Podcast. Catalyst is an ongoing discussion for digital leaders dissatisfied with the status quo and yet optimistic about what's possible through smart technology and great people. Well, I've got a great person with me today and also a smart technologist. I want to welcome to the podcast, Chris Fox. Chris is the Senior Vice President of Digital Transformation Services at NTT Data. He's also a pilot. We'll get into some of that and some of his background in aeronautics and all that great stuff. I wanted to bring Chris on today because I believe he's got a really unique point of view. He's out there talking to technology leaders and digital leaders every single day and in my estimation has a fantastic pulse on you know what's happening now. Where do people want to go? What are they tired of hearing about? What do they want to hear about? Where do they want to go next? And how do we fire up those dissatisfied technology leaders so they see a new way forward? Chris, welcome to the podcast, Jack. Thank you for joining us for the first time on Catalyst. Oh, good morning, Clint. Definitely really looking forward to the conversation today. And uh, as you mentioned, really something I'm passionate about. I think it's really something that also everyone's facing, you know, these same challenges. So I can't wait to get into the discussion. Yeah, awesome, man. Thank you a ton. You're down in the south, southwest Gulf Coast, Florida down there, looking at your history. I love to dig in a little bit to the origin story. I tell the audience, my dad and my mom owned a uh, card and comic book shop. It was called Captain Cronies cards and comics on Deer Park Avenue. So I'm a bit of a sucker for an origin story. I always love knowing that. And I can look back and see that, uh, man, you know, went to aeronautics you know, school, I believe, and you were a, a pilot, or probably still are a pilot. A little bit of that, but also, you know, how did that kind of set you up career-wise? What do you learn? Because I have never piloted a plane, uh, you know, maybe Microsoft, uh, you know, the simulator. But what do you learn that serves you later as you've uh, grown your career from your days of, of studying to be a pilot? Yeah, one of the probably most interesting parts about, you know, being a pilot is you, know, you have to plan, first of all, where you start and where you end is, uh, you know, just two parts of it. Then there's essentially let's set up a plan. And then not only that, usually when you get up in the air, something happens, mm. right? It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. So you're always coming up with different ideas and contingencies and, and ultimately just a lot of time experience and being fluid along the way is really the key. And I think, honestly, in the job I have today, all those things still apply. Well, I would say I probably spend a good amount of time on airplanes, too. So at least now I can know what they're doing, you know, even if I'm sitting in the back. Yeah. So that's pretty fun. Gotcha. So whether you're in the jump seat or you're way up front, George Clooney style. But quick question. This is just, I think, curious. Do you tell people on the plane, like, you know, the stewardess or a captain, like, hey, if something were to go wrong, you could tap me? Is that something you openly share or do they do like, yeah, yeah, what, whatever, bud? How does Only that work? Only my wife. <laughs> Only my wife. So, uh, you know, because she's not a good flyer at all. Gotcha. So anything that happens, any pitch or roll or, you know, plane noise that happens because they're dropping flaps or gear. Sure. And I'm usually like, OK, here, here's what's going on, hon. You know, right. here's what's happening. So she loves that. But I also tell her. By the way, if something were to happen, hun, then I would absolutely be fine landing this plane. I go. said it would be something that it would be obviously pretty stressful, but it would be, I wouldn't say fun. I almost said fun. It wouldn't be fun because something actually <laughs> went really wrong. You never want that. But I would just say definitely would be fine landing nice. that plane. 
Yeah, I love I love you. Like, okay, not fun, yeah, but not- I think it also shows a little bit how you're wired that those moments and you know, back to the business side of the world, those moments where maybe something can get a little rocky, not on a plane, not at 30, you know, 5,000 feet. But when things get a little rocky, the idea that the, hey, you know, I'm with you. I got this. I, I've done this before. You know, I know how to land this thing, which is, I think, super calming. So I know it's an audio podcast for those listening. If you ever hear that that voice, you're like, wait a second. I believe that gentleman's a pilot. <laughs> We're going to be A-OK. <laughs> and uh, and you know, so, Chris, I wanted to discuss with you today because you are out there uh, quite a bit in your role talking with leaders, right? And at launch by NTT Data, we do gear everything up and say, look, we're really for dissatisfied, but yet optimistic technology leaders. Those who kind of know, wait, this could be better. This could be smoother. This could just run better for the business and just be focused on the right things. So the last, let's say, decade or so has been really, let's call it slathered with digital transformation, right? Like, get to the cloud, go huge, get off the monoliths and let's digitize the entire organization. So while the promise is certainly there and certainly smart and it's, it's a logical, compelling argument, what are you seeing from leaders out there? Basically, are they jaded at this point from hearing that tone over and over again from like the, the GSI world? Yeah, I think there's some fatigue without question. I, part of it is there's been a lot of discussion about transformation, which, you know, has been helpful. There's some companies who have really executed it really well. Yeah. However, I would also say there's a lot of people just calling it transformation when, you know, perhaps they're just moving a couple of apps to the cloud, for example. There's some element of transformation there. But here's what I think is really happening is I think we all know change cycles are happening faster, right? Mm-hmm. The world's moving faster. Platforms are moving faster. Customer, and most importantly, their customers' expectations are going and changing faster. So what, what does that all mean? I think what it means is that, you know, we all know we need to go faster, but we seemingly can't go fast enough. And that kind of leads to this question that I run into a lot of with the C-suite. They always say, well, you know, we've got a, a number of different issues that prevent us yeah. from moving faster. You know, and that's kind of the essence of, of these conversations on transformation is that really looking at it from the top level and saying, when you say you want to move faster, what do you want to do? And then what prevents you from getting that done? And then number three, how could we set up a process to do this? And it's also very holistic in nature. I think the other part we see an awful lot is not enough people maybe thinking in systems, mm. right? So if you think of like an experience, right? It's a mobile application, but that mobile application is integrating to some number of systems on a backend, maybe through a set of APIs. Those APIs hit a number of applications. Those applications might spawn a bunch of processes. They may be sitting on a set of platforms and ultimately run by a bunch of different people. So you think to yourself, you know, that's a lot of pieces to maybe make something come to life and really be exciting and special. So I think if people look at it in essentially a very small slice, they're kind of missing the opportunity to really transform you know, a business. And I learned a lot of this when I was at Amazon before NTT. I really saw this process they talked about a lot called working backwards. Mm-hmm. And working backwards really just meant what it sounded like. Yes, we want a great experience. We all know Amazon to have an unbelievable, simple, fast and fun experience. But when they work backwards, all the different pieces and puzzles underneath it, 
that's when the real value gets unlocked. And again, it's really hard, as we all know. Not everyone has an Amazonian experience, we'll call it. Sure. But boy, when you do it right and you attack it that way, and that's kind of our goal, right, is to really look at it, you know, working backwards like this from goals and aspirations, challenges, and then what prevents us from getting there and then slicing through the organization people, process, technologies, old and new, and saying, okay, what do we need to move? What do we need to change? What do we need to improve to get there? And the best CIOs, CDOs, the best line of business leaders, they get that. And then they're signing up for it. And then they're seeing the change. There's other teams that may not be, you know, maybe as bought into that kind of holistic transformation that really moves the needle. And I think that's where maybe some of the tough spots have come in. Right. Maybe their executives weren't bought into their vision as well, right? Because change is hard. Yeah. But it's fun. Once you get it going, once you find the right leadership, once you all align behind the right set of goals and metrics, and then you take the holistic view and start knocking down pins, it's really exciting. And frankly, just so you know, it never should end. Right. Right. It should be a continuous journey. Right. And Chris, I don't think that's a that's like, oh, we're gonna be here forever type thing. It's like, no. I don't think that at all. I think it's more along the lines of, hey, you talked about preventing, but hey, what prevents velocity, right? Like that's that's what you're after. And yet you're feeling choked down. So you take the holistic view and you get into the nitty gritty because you have to. When you think it's okay, just on the surface level, we're going to do innovative things. We're going to do hackathons. We're going to do just design with experience. Like those are all really good things. And at launch, we certainly talk all the time about design led experiences. That's great. And as you're getting those net new experiences going, you got to look all the way down through the layers and figure out where are we spending time? Are we spending time churning on things that should be a heck of a lot smoother? And because we're there, we're not focused on the next, you know, top line revenue producing product or service or reconstituting API to do different things, uh, things that breed value versus spending time way down depressed in that stack because you can't figure it out. So it's like, it's almost a little love and marriage. Like you can't have one without the other. It's, it's cool to envision. Of course, you want to go bold. You want to be a pragmatic visionary. But the pragmatic part as you envision is, can we do this? And if we can't right. yet, how the heck do we figure it out? So I love the notion that you're really gearing the leaders up for almost the conversation of, hey, this is worth it. That's right. Well, one thing on that, Clint, too, is it's so important to set that vision of what is our goal up top. And then that means now we know why all this is important to change down below. Sometimes that's really also what the teams below need. They need to understand that, you know, the reason why we're changing is because we have this big visionary, maybe it's a big and bold goal we want to showcase. And so what we ended up doing is really creating an entire motion around this thought. And the thought was really based on some of my experience, like, you know, I've worked myself, you know, at GE on the client side of the house. I've worked at Lockheed Martin. We always said we had like a hundred of everything and nothing was integrated together, right? <laughs> yes. And at the same time, I also worked, you know, at Oracle and then Amazon. And you really got to see like two different sides of the world on that end. And so kind of seeing what's new, we'll call it Amazonian kind of think, and then yeah. seeing what the real world of IT looks like. You understand and have empathy for saying like, okay, yeah, everyone wants to be really fast and be able to deliver everything, but we have this whole other side of our world that runs our companies and runs our businesses, and it slows us down because it wasn't built for a time of speed, agility, and things of that nature. 
So we created this whole program as a motion that really is universal, frankly, and all industries will face the same challenge I'm about to lay out. And so that's why there's a motion I've created called Leap. And Leap itself, the motion really centers itself on really this two big components in particular that started off. The L side of this equation is all about, we have this whole legacy side of our world, right? The reason is the business has been running in many times for years. And so we run factories, we run supply chains, we close books you know, for quarter end, year end, and we're doing a lot of great important things. But yet these processes have been built over time, right? The applications have been built over time. Even the people and the skills and the platforms have evolved over time. So what we can do there generally is there's a lot of inefficiencies mm-hmm. that we should look at. And with that, generally, we are saving companies anywhere from 20 to 40% of the cost of running today. So that's a really big statement because frankly, what does it do? There's a value to this 20 to 40% of like IT spend. Yeah. And a lot of companies, that's a big number. Number two, there's a lot of time spent keeping those lights on. Yeah. So there's sure. even a time quotient that you could get back time and frankly, use those and swing those dollars, the time and all that energy over to the E side, which is all about energizing co-innovation. So when we think about co-innovation, why do we call it that? Because generally, if I gave you a number of dollars and I gave you the time to actually innovate at scale, because now this legacy side, we're making it better. Most people, first of all, they have a lot of ideas. They're like, oh my God, if I had $50 million, one of the clients we're working with, we're modernizing their mainframe environment. It's going to cost them $120 million over a seven-year period. We cut that in half. So now they have $60 million that they could yep. use to free, innovate and Free reinvent. capital, right? Yes, that's Free uh, capital. Yep. And then there's all the time and people and energy spent there. Mm-hmm. And we said, what would you do if you had $60 million over the next seven years? Like, what would you do with it? And they're like, oh my God. I mean, this is a huge amount of things. I mean, we would definitely reinvent our experiences. We would deploy far better analytics that we do today. We'd become more real-time versus batch-driven. We'd understand our clients a lot better. They said, but we don't have the people to do that. Like, we don't have those skills because, frankly, we spent so much time running the business. We haven't figured out, like, like, we don't know AI. Like, we don't have data science practitioners. Like, we don't have UX designers, right? We have to build new cloud-native systems on a couple of different clouds. And, frankly, we don't have those skills, right? We don't have good pipelines, right? We deploy like once every month, you know, at mm-hmm. best. And we definitely want to get to maybe once a day if we could. And so that's where this E side of the equation came from. We said, you know what? Let's help you co-innovate because we can help you with those types of challenges on the new platform, the innovation side, the part that leads to growth, the part that leads to better client experiences and more of a data-driven business. So you know, underneath that, we ended up spending more time on continuing to automate the processes as we go across both sides. And then also at the very bottom, the real thought was, you know, now that we've got money, we've got time, we're innovating. The business sees that we're actually innovating at scale. Our clients see us maybe now more responsive than ever. Things are changing faster than ever. We need a, a very much an important layer at the very bottom that says, how do we promote these wins yeah. internally and externally, right? Like, IT is not a cost center. IT actually is driving the digital business forward faster with the business. 
So we need to promote that internally and frankly, externally. That's the other part of this. We want our clients to know that you're working with a very innovative customer, right? At this point. And also for them, the talent wars are still true. People want to go work for innovators. So the more you get the word out that, hey, we're innovating, we're moving faster, we're using the latest tools and technologies and techniques, come work for us and change the world. That type of process, we built something called the Innovation OS, which in this case, that allows you to both prioritize, promote. And at Amazon, we always talked about the culture of innovation. Every week we had a session on how to run a culture of innovation based on Amazonian techniques. What I didn't realize until I saw the Innovation OS and what we're doing here was like there wasn't a prescriptive playbook. How do you actually do it? And how do you do it at an enterprise size and scale? And that was the funniest part was that I realized I'm like, oh my God, the good thing was we told them how we did it at Amazon. The bad news is you're not Amazon, right? And I want to jump in there too. Yeah, I, sure. I, I mean, we, could, we certainly could go deeper into the Innovation OS side of it as well. Yeah. A couple of things come up there for me that I want to draw out a bit further too is mm-hmm. like, hey, you know, yeah, you're not Amazon, right? So I worked at a crowdsourcing platform for many, many years previous to my time at Nexient that then rolled into and became part of Launch by NTT Data. And one of our biggest clients was NASA. They were running grand challenges and algorithmic challenges on our platform, tons of success. And we'd get them on stage and they were awesome partners and it's public. So they got to share everything they're creating exactly down to the penny, what they spent, what they got from it you know, mandated so that they would, they have to share that stuff, which is super cool. And we had great, great partners. And yet the market would say to us, yeah, but we're not NASA. And we're like, Hey, but you're kind of missing the point. Like NASA didn't understand how in that particular instance, they didn't understand how to use crowd and open talent until they figured it out. They dug in and were able to help co-innovate a system that worked for them so they could regulate it, have the governance around they wanted and get what were extreme value outcomes from a thing that wasn't being tapped by most people. So it's, it's yes, you're not Amazon, but you're also not a startup. You have to treat yourself uniquely, but also honestly that it's like, look, you're not going to get these gains in velocity and remove these blockers to velocity in any way that's not like enterprise scale. You've got to do it honestly. Look at the legitimate blockers there. And that leads into the areas of you're bringing in the leap framework of, well, you know, you're freeing up this capital by doing, I would say like, you know, OPEX on one side, right? Like operational excellence to use a traditional out there term and then fuel the future. And then while you're doing that, it's one thing to say, here's $60 million, good luck. Right. Right. And that's um, something, but it's certainly not the whole thing by any stretch because I think in most organizations, what would end up happening is if they don't really know yet, they'd be like, oh, let's spin up our innovation teams and let's have the sidecar of they get the bean bags and they get the cold brew and they get the they get the chalkboard for walls. There's a pool table in there somewhere. You no, know, of course there is. Yeah. yeah. But none of it ever brings back to the business. So they'd be looking seven years later, being like, where'd our sixty million dollars go? It didn't right. impact the business versus what you're laying out is more holistic. And I think quite attractive to that C-level to say, hey, we are going to free up that money. And we know budgets are more constrained than they were even just a couple of years ago, certainly Mm -hmm. five, five, six, seven years ago. And we're going to help you use that money really programmatically and wisely. And I think that bleeds into the the Innovation OS part of it as well, where I think you could provide a bit more detail, like how is that different? So it's like, okay, here's 60 million, Godspeed and good luck versus 
We freed this money up. Now let's programmatically look at getting you really good at caretaking for that so you get business results. Can you dive into a bit more on the Innovation OS uh, component of that? Yeah, definitely. So what was really fun to watch was <laughs> we had one Fortune 500 company that launched an innovation program. It's actually, to your point, it's sanctioned by the CEO. He was the one who launched it. The CDO and CIO, of course, right alongside. Sure. He stood up the innovation team. And they got 200 ideas sourced from the business in the first 30 days. So mission accomplished, right? We're an innovator. Yeah, right. Send us your ideas. Super Bowl effect, right? You know, so ultimately yeah. like, okay, what was the test harness for that one? Uh-oh. So now we got 200 ideas that flow yeah. in. What and now? their thought was, they said, okay, what do we do now? Because we do have money. Now we've got these ideas. And the thought was, let's organize this. One of the things that we had helped them with, in this case, with the Innovation OS was to say, okay, first of all, you know, let's go ahead and take a look at this from a portfolio standpoint, right? The value to the business versus the level of effort. And do we have the skills? And they essentially, you know, we helped them with this portfolio and then even put the portfolio out on a very public page to the rest of the enterprise because they wanted to show the employees was that we heard you loud and clear. The good right. news, we have 200 ideas. Of course, we can't action 200. Sure. We got to figure out based on these vectors, what should we prototype? Very first thing, what would we prototype and what would the skills look like and who would the pod be that would start that journey? And who's the business person also who's really passionate about you know, seeing this move forward? So you start prototyping. And ultimately, there was a number of adjustments. The business wanted a little bit differently. The teams were building and iterating with us, right? So now you have this great three-way conversation of the line of business who had always said IT was slow and lumbering and wasn't responsive. You had IT saying, I always wanted to be able to do this. We didn't have the time, money, or skills to do it. And then we were helping them organize it and also helping them co-innovate together. So whether it was design studio-led sessions in Nashville and all these other places, we were literally sitting shoulder to shoulder with them and then executing the code on Azure in this case. And I literally, this one particular example, have been iterating it. The prototype is looking very successful. It's showcasing well, you know, in their small tests. Then we'd be able to turn it towards MVP. And with MVP, showcase some of those results, both internally and externally. Right. And then the question now becomes, should we try to scale, right? Because we've proved it out once. Now we're scaling out to multiple teams, multiple pods across multiple different line of business leaders. And again, it's really exciting because the, the whole continuum starts, if you think of it like a flywheel. Yeah. So the business is now like, oh, IT is finally sitting side by side with me not adversarial now. It's more of we're both in this together to excite our customers. Number two, IT is saying, you know what? We can do this. We actually have a process now that we can run that showcases to our employees their ideas, showcases for them like why we actioned one over the other. We even now prototyped it. And here's the big thing, unheard of in IT, showcase the failure. Yeah, sure. Right. Of course. So the thought is like, oh my God, we don't have time, money, or skill to fail. Like, you know, everyone says fail fast. Not many people want to talk about fail fast. They should. Because again, in that innovation OS, part of promoting is learning. And part of the promotion is, hey, we tried this. We thought it was a great idea. Here's why it's not ready yet, maybe for prime time. So it's going to go back into the portfolio and we're going to iterate to the next step. But again, 
it also showed the business that people were willing to fail. It's so, so unheard of in today's IT world. Like everyone wants to be an innovator, but innovation is messy. Yeah. And if you're innovating, really innovating, you're going to fail. Like these are experiments, right? That you should scale and you should scale fast or fail them fast. And so that was another huge thing that if we had the CDO on, he would say, the fact that we told people we failed in this company, which is it's a 200 year old company. Right. So the fact of the matter is for them to be able to tell people that internally, there's a lot of angst, like, oh my God, we don't do that. And he's like, no guys, honestly, that's all part of the journey. Let's do it. And so um, it's really fun to see the Innovation OS, give them some structure where they didn't have it before. Number two, help them organize with the business, most importantly. And number three, not be afraid to fail, right? Yeah, absolutely. We were talking beforehand about the new book that uh, Nate Berens-Spilson put out, the VP of Engineering at Launch, that's called Frictionless Enterprise. And one of the concepts is turning the fail fast concept a little bit and rotating and saying, we really want you to fail small in the mm-hmm. sense that like, not that the risk was small or that the idea was small. It's not about just continuous improvement things that that could be beneficial, but these can still be transformative things. However, when you're doing it inside a system that you're describing, that's a lot smoother and that you're getting either technology reuse or you have a program to run it through. So it's as efficient as possible. Well, you're actually just decreasing the amount of time you had to spend to get there and how much money you might have had to spend to get to an MVP, to get it into users' hands to say, is this working? Do we have a, a real pulse here? So it's also that concept of, hey, we could take many more swings when we do this the right way. And the thing that leads me to there, Chris, is mm-hmm. juxtaposing what is an actual culture of innovation, right? Where you have lots of different stakeholders that are involved co-creating together versus mm-hmm. innovation theater. Mm-hmm. And innovation theater is, it ends bad because it never resonates with business value where this is flipped. Again, the whole system, we're going to save you 20 to 40%. That's millions of dollars. We're going to fuel your future, get you focused on experiences and it could be transformative technology or whatever you want to go at. And we're going to programmatically look at how do we do this in a systems way that is anchored to business value from Jump Street. So there is That's just right. no doubt. So as these MVPs are getting there and getting to people's hands, you can make actual decisions. Now, it doesn't mean all the risk is off. That's not how this works. It just means you've thought about it critically and shaped a better way to do this at scale, which again, we're not startups. We don't have one shot and we're done and it fails right. and there goes a hundred million dollars of, of, you know, a series A or series B. It's not how this works. So right. we've got to have volume and we've got to have systems and repeatability and measurability. And that's what being kind of a grown up in the enterprise world is when it comes to innovation. So I just wanted to juxtapose for the audience that true culture of innovation versus again, that thin layer of innovation theater, which just, it ends up falling on itself. That's right. And just so you know, too, what's interesting is all executives, everyone would agree. It's kind of like, does everyone want to lose weight? Does everyone want to eat better? Sure, does everyone right. want to have great sleep? And it's like all these things, like I say, January 1st is like the, the healthiest day of the year, right? right. You know, because we're all like all in. And then you get some of this hard part of like, well, why can't we do it on a continuous basis? What I love about this approach is I think enterprises are similar with innovation. There's not a single company you've ever walked into who said, I don't want to be an innovator, right? right. Like that's no. not the aspirational goal. And Everyone wants to grow revenue. Everyone wants to have great customer experiences. Like everyone wants this. 
And so it's like, then why is it so damn hard to figure out how to do it? And that's why this whole leap motion was created was we said, you know what? We've got a pattern now that says we can help you innovate, but we also can now take away some of the things that essentially robbed you of being able to innovate. So one side of the business is give me more time. Like I need more time to be able to experiment. The other one says, I don't have any money to experiment. The other one's like, we're on the wrong systems, applications, processes to innovate. It's like, you know what? The motion needs to be, let me take away those problems that prevent you from being an innovator. And then let me slide the time, money, and skills, and even a process to do it with so that you become an innovator. And ultimately, the business over time, kind of like that rising tide, a raising the bar concept, the business gets more digital, it gets faster, it gets more innovative, and ultimately gets more aggressive because to your point, your sine wave of change becomes very rapid, right? The ability for you to detect, hey, this isn't going to work, let me not do it. So the cost, time, or skills wasn't that great to experiment like it may have been the initial onset. So again, um, who knows, we had a logo for it. Maybe that should have been the thing. Maybe it should be like a (laughs) sine wave that gets getting tighter and smaller. Right? right, because you know you can actually move it faster and do it with less effort, and obviously know which ones are succeeding and which ones to keep or which ones to toss. Yeah, I think it's the opposite of a uh, redshifting. If we're talking about astrophysics, like looking back in time, and I think the things elongate and they get redshifted out there. When you're looking 13 billion years back with the web, That's right. but it's fascinating. What I love about the conversation is that it's stripping away for me. I don't like the MBA gobbledygook of speaking with with all these gigantic words that don't add up to a hill of beans when Mm -hmm. instead it can be simplified. It doesn't mean it's not hard. Nobody's saying this is not legitimately difficult to critically think about. However, organizations, the Fortune 500, the Fortune 1000, the Global 1000, they've got smart people. Mm -hmm. They've got really smart and dedicated people who, like you said, they all want it. They all know what they want to aspire at. It takes a a turn to look it through a different purview and holistically think about, okay, how do we engineer this as a system so it serves, serves the entire business and it is holistic? Because without it, it's very difficult to affect the kind of change that you're talking about, where you get that rise, where you clear the deck of all the velocity challenges and the business, that's transformation. When the business, let's say three, five years later can act so much more rapidly innovative because it's been proven, they could do it, they have a way of doing it. And now that becomes the culture. That's it. That's the big win. And, you know, frankly, could talk to you about it for uh, for hours still, but I know we're out of time today, Chris. So, uh, hey, LinkedIn, best way for people to give you a shout, just Chris Fox, F-O-X, like the animal. Is that the best way to find you? Yeah, actually, it's uh, chris.fox.mba and that's my forward slash on linkedin.com. So awesome. All right. really enjoyed it, Clint. I mean, like I say, this is a subject we're passionate about where we're really good at doing it as well is helping people with that kind of, it's a prescriptive motion, but the implementation is always very brief on every client for sure. Really love it. Could spend all day for sure on these topics. Yeah. And I get a feeling we'll be talking again at some point soon. And I know in the future we will as well. So let's thank Chris for joining us here in the studio today on Catalyst, the launch by NTT Data Podcast. We believe in shipping software over slideware that fast will follow smooth and aiming to create digital experiences that move millions is a very worthy pursuit. Join us next time as the pursuit continues on Catalyst, the launch by NTT Data Podcast.